0: I, I I wrestle with this a lot because there's a lot of like kind of sonic exceptionalism within like sound for these discourses that sometimes get <laughs> very frustrated with. Like, oh, sound will solve all your political problems. You
1: know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> What's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith.
1: And I am Troy Polidori.
2: And this week we have a guest on, uh, a returning guest, friend of the show, friend of the podcast, Macon Holt, who is a postdoc researcher in Copenhagen at the Copenhagen Business School. Um, but don't let the title of Copenhagen Business School fool you into his research, if you guys remember from episode, what was it, Troy? 122?
1: Is that what we said? One, I believe 122.
2: Yeah, uh, a few months back, we talked about music, pop music, sound, politics, um, philosophy, theory, critical theory, Mark Fisher, who I believe was his advisor. Is that
1: right? His supervisor for his PhD? Or oh, I think his supervisor was under Mark Fisher. I don't remember Is exactly. That what,
2: yeah, it was something, there's, there's a relation there. So um, yeah, so definitely that's kind of the vein of the discussion um, from the last time. And this time we're going to kind of extend upon that based on a new essay that he has coming out that'll be out, uh, I believe in December, but it's called The Entertainment. And can you give uh, just a quick ch- like chicken scratch version of what the essay covers, Troy, for people?
1: Yeah, so really briefly, the the entertainment's a reference to the object of desire in David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, another thing we talk about for a little bit of an interview with Macon. Um, and the essay kind of discusses, uh, especially coming from uh, the perspective of music festivals, um, whether sonic entertainments have the sort of emancipatory potential, um, politically, socially, and otherwise, that some think they do criticizes certain notions of that and then posits um, the potential for um, some other kind of uh, sonic um, sonically based sort of emancipation or um, sonically based forms of of community and stuff like that. So it's going to go as our discussion does around aesthetics, ethics, philosophy, freedom, politics, all sorts of stuff. It's a wide ranging um, discussion and appropriately given the topic. Yeah. And speaking of sonic enjoyment, Macon Holt.
2: Just say that name a few times. That's a badass name, like, (laughs) isn't it? I don't know. I think it's freaking cool. I, I kind of have a crush on the name, you know.
1: (laughs) I can't. I can't tell if if it sounds more like the badass side character in a video game, or yeah, or I I can also think of it as being like the protagonist in an adventure novel perhaps
2: oh yeah Ooh, yeah 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 like or like uh uncharted 5 a new character I literally i was just in. thinking
1: nathan drake retires <laughs> making Holt <Hulk> takes over <laughs> yes yes i love it um
2: so yeah so you can stick around uh for the main segment where we talk about that but of course we got to start things off with a little house cleaning and uh some shitty minute stuff so what do we got to talk about real quick troy
1: Oh man, it's quite a few things. We have a. Uh, if you're not a, a patron, you can get access by going to patreon.com/slash I at dawn to various goodies, such as our newest bonus episode where we talked about the election, right? Yes, we the did. election, which is apparently still going on um, somehow. <laughs> Even when you listen uh, to this, America is, probably, is
2: the yeah. America is the place where we uh, campaign perpetually, and our elections never
1: end. Yeah, you thought the campaign was long. Now the election's never going to stop. So we talked about that for about 30, 40 minutes, something like that. Ranted and raved, uh, more so than we usually do. I think we got a little – I mean, you wouldn't – we don't drink. I don't drink when we do the podcast. But you might mistake us for having been drinking in that podcast. Yeah. 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 Um, So we did that. You can get access to that by becoming a patron. You can also get access by becoming a patron to the ability to help us choose our next patron-sponsored episode. So we put up a um, a post on Patreon.com to have you suggest certain topics. We collate them together, make some adjustments where necessary to make them you know as general as we can, so that we can have some freedom in how to explore the topic at hand. And then we put up a poll, and the patrons vote on it. So. Um, I believe by the time you're listening to this, the poll should be up. Is that correct, Austin?
2: That is correct. So if you are a patron, go make sure you vote on the poll. If you're not a patron, then you can get access to that at patreon.com owls at dawn. Yeah, yep. Alright, no more housekeeping. It's time to get the juices flowing. It is time for the shitty minute, which a friend on Twitter teased us about because the minute lasted her for her entire drive, her commute, because the (laughs) minute is only a metaphorical minute, but it's the point of the packaging that matters. The shitty minute is the time where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off, chapping our hide, grinding our gears. Goose in our gooch, I don't know. It's 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 in Goose there, man. Gooch. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I was just trying to find alliterations. Um, yeah, alliterative uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's uh penalizing the peen. It's um <laughs> aggravating the anus. I mean, you know, it's doing some stuff is what it's doing. So this is the time where we vent and get it all out so that it's no longer perturbing us. So Troy, what is your shitty minute?
1: So I decided to have a music-themed Shitty minutes given our interview with Macon, which will be happening after this. I wanted it to be a smooth transition. So I've been listening to the latest Deftones record for the past several weeks. Oh, have you heard it at all?
2: No, I haven't listened to Deftones since I was a fucking teenager.
1: Yeah, I mean, almost the same. I, I listened to all their albums when they come out, and uh, I loved Around the Fur, White Pony, um, even Adrenaline, their first record, I thought was was pretty good. And I liked it a lot when I was a teenager. I don't like it as much now. But I still have a, a deep and abiding affection for White Pony. I think it's one of the great alternative metal records ever made. Um, and has a special place in my heart for that even now. And then everything they've made after that's it's been it's anywhere between acceptable, good, like above average to pretty good. Right, okay. um, Koino yeah, yeah. Yoka I thought it was a really good album came out like 10 years ago uh, but I I certainly don't think of them as one of my favorite bands um, they, they were around the time of White Pony they're just a band that I appreciate still right? and they're certainly in that genre not saying much but they're, they're sort of the kings of that genre I think it's appropriate to say there's no one else in the alternative metal sphere who's even still around really let alone making um, anything that's worthwhile to listen to but their new album Ohms OHMS, I think, is the best thing they've put out since White Pony. Uh, It's really good. And it is um, just the production on it. I think they got the producer who worked on their first first, uh, several records returning. Mm. Um, I don't remember the producer's name. Um, Oh, Terry Date, that's it. He's a famous producer. And so the album is just, the guitars are just. Gargantuan. They are massive and it really adds a lot. Since you know, they have like kind of a shoegazy kind of um, uh, side to them as well, like kind of cure kind of side Mm. to them. And so they combine that with like the really massive guitars creates a great dynamic. Um, Anyway, this is the shitty minute, not the sticky leaves, right? Right, right. this is making me remember, and a lot of people have been talking about, you know, Deftones, right? They're the only good new metal band is kind of the the thing that like musically literate people tend to say. Which is first of all false, because system of a down was alternative metal at the same time, and alternative metal bands were called new metal, right? New metal and alternative mm-hmm. metal were just new metal's just a time period in which alternative metal existed, right? When people say new metal, though, in a disparaging tone, they mean like Limp Bizkit and um, corn. all the v- coal chamber. Corn. okay, this is where I'm getting into my shitty minute, right? Most of what Corn did sucks, right? Their first record isn't bad, though. I think it became bad because of all the things that it influenced, and you can see their later work in it, Right. And so now it kind of gets cast as bad. I don't think their first figure is actually bad when you consider it in and of itself. Now that said, it's the critiques of new metal that rub me the wrong way. And this is coming from someone who loves all that shit, even the terrible shit. I listen to Coal Chamber. I listen to Taproot. I listen to like the shittiest Mud metal fans. I like I love Mudvayne's not even that bad, right? They they were good. I don't, static X. Lawful. Static Axe was great in an ironic way. <laughs> Pop, Papa Roach? <laughs> Disturbed is the worst. They, they didn't even write their own damn songs, dude. Like, they were a full on, like, industry plant band. Um, but yeah, there was tons of them. Um, 99% of them were bad, right? It's wrong to say Deftones was the only good one, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, what is the critique of new metal? Usually it's not, oh, the musicianship is, is subpar, even though it often is compared to. Other times or periods of alternative metal or metal in general, right? That's certainly true. That's not where people go though, right? They don't have this sort of hoity-toity like, oh, the musicianship is lacking. They go towards the lyrical content and sort of the, the character of the band themselves. Like the band is a person that has a specific type of vicious character, right? In the moral sense. And so it's usually like, oh, they're... Um, agro teens, right? They're just mad at their parents. They're lashing out. They're not really, there's nothing constructive. There's nothing intelligent or worthwhile or interesting about what they have to say or what they're doing. The the illocutionary aspect of the music, not just the lyrics, just the whole um, set of music in general. And so therefore we can kind of say this is the kind of thing teenagers are into and they get they get over it and they move on right it's just it's a purely a means to an end it, the music itself doesn't have any sort of independent meaning or significance it's just used to sort of as limp biscuit's song famously describes break stuff right <laughs> would that be an accurate description you think of how people tend to criticize new metal genre as a uh... historical phenomenon
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess, I I haven't read a lot of hard-hitting think pieces on critiquing new metal, so for me it's all anecdotal, it's just, like, people chatting shit, and usually it's just that it's kind of viewed as, like, super 90s, like, suburban dudes from fucking Florida or L.A. uh, talking about, like, chicks and trying to be profound, but it ends up being kind of cheesy, because... A lot of them are kind of emulating hip hop culture, like fucking Crazy Town or whatever, but in like a really bad way. So that's kind oh, of how yeah. I've, yeah, Every or like Head PE P- <laughs> or something like that. You know?
1: Oh, Head PE. I forgot about them. I like <laughs> them too a lot. <laughs> <That's sad. laughs> you are outing yourself, man. Oh, no, yeah. I, no, I have no problem admitting that. I love your all that stuff, your but...
2: new metal love is my pop punk, so I I get it.
1: But here's the And thing, I think I, I think there's I think a similarity. I think so too. But it's it's reductive to say it's a phase. I think it's the point that I'm trying to make. What I, you mean that you you
2: liking it as a phase, or that it as an emergent phenomenon was a phase?
1: Both, right? Okay. And I think we were the people. I think kids at that time in the late '90s responded to it in a certain way because it wasn't viewed by them as a phase, and they're not wrong for thinking that. So. I think that it's important to point out that bands like Korn especially, I think they're kind of the paradigm of this, you go back and look at the lyrics and see how the music fits with Jonathan Davis's lyrics. Most of it's about like being sexually abused, being beaten up, right? Being sort of hated and dismissed by everybody in your life, right? Dysfunctional families and friends and um, romantic relationships. Yeah, it's all aggro stuff, right? And it's certainly not the most intelligently put together or poetic stuff, but it's dealing with trauma, right? And I think when people dismiss it as, oh, they're just angry kids who don't like the fact that the jocks got the girl and they didn't, which I'm sure sometimes there are examples of that in New Metal, for sure. But to reductively explain it all as that kind of like uh, superficial resentment is reductive. And I think that the reason why kids like Mm. me, white, suburban, very much um, repressed, you know, coming from an evangelical background and stuff, right? Um, we, we sort of were drawn to that stuff because there was there was something meaningful in it. There was some solidarity in it, right? Now, mm-hmm. is it cringe? Yes, it's very much cringe, especially looking back on it now, right? But I think, and this all comes from the idea or sort of the discussion of the Deftones record, because it's supposed to be the example of what new metal could have been. It's like the opposite, right? It's intelligent, it's sophisticated, it's poetic, it's not straightforward, it's not aggro, right? Mm. It's not like second personal in the sense of like talking to (laughs) somebody you don't like or that you resent. And I think it all just goes back to this notion that resentment as a whole has to be this like purely reactionary thing. Often it is, and we should point out when it is, and it's not good when it is, right? But you have to try to understand why someone's resentful and that to them, it's not reactionary in this sort of like automatic, non-rational or irrational sense, uh, and, and this is going to go into a discussion we're actually going to have later with Makin, which I, I like the um, sort of confluence here about trying to understand things from other people's point of view. Mm. Um, and I don't think people do that when they have these very superficial, reductive critiques of New metal. Is it bad? Yes. Except for hmm. very few bright spots. But the reason is not because it's reactionary. Um, that's not a helpful way of discussing it. And it's certainly not how I think any other genres would appreciate being judged as well. Mm.
2: yeah see i never had a new metal phase i like obviously when limp limp biscuit was on like mtv that was the thing right and fred durst was larger than life and uh what's his name jonathan from corn
1: jonathan davis yeah
2: yeah like he was huge and then like fucking um you had head and then what's the other guy the guy that's become an evangelical christian now um uh, in no, there's,
1: there, there was monkey the bassist but that's not him I thought it was head. Was it not? Oh,
2: maybe it is head. Yeah, I think he lives in like he lives in Southern Orange County, like in my neighborhood. So like it was a thing to like care about corn because he was like a local dude. Same with the guys from Lincoln Park, the bass player from Lincoln Park. Um, f- I can't remember his name right now. Fucking
1: also a band that while often Phoenix? cringy, is that his name? Wasn't yeah. bad. Go ahead
2: yeah I mean like I never like those are the names that I know and I listened to a couple of songs from Mudvayne and I know like Evanescence and obviously P.O.D. because they had that one song and they were kind of like the safe <laughs> Christian version and like you know the I feel so alive for the very first time and I think I could fly <laughs> like like that shit oh, I remember God, I those that <laughs> and, and that Evanescence song what Immortal or whatever it's called like oh, God. you know Breathe i can't remember take me up wake oh wake me up wake (laughs) me up inside i can't yeah whatever that's like that song when that song comes on that's still a banger but it's like is it an ironic banger like you just remember it but here's the thing man like cringe isn't necessarily bad like it can be bad right but cringe is Mm -hmm. more just like a uh, like like, i'm in a different place now sort of thing but like what what don't we cringe like I wrote a prob- I probably wrote a fucking love poem or a love letter. I mean, I bought okay when I was in second grade. There was a girl that I liked, and her name was Erin, and I don't want to say her last name because just in case, you know, who knows? It never gets out there. But <laughs> I had this major crush on her, and I bought her like a fucking piece of jewelry from Disneyland, and I gave it to her. When I think about it now, I'm like, that's pretty cringy. Like, yeah, is it maybe kind of sweet and dude. cute? It's also a little bit cringy, right? Like because you Wait, just how old were you? I was like eight. Oh, yeah, dude, that's adorable. Yeah, but it's also like because you're just so crazy about it. Okay, maybe that's not cringy. But maybe when you're like (laughs) 13 and you're like, I I can't fucking breathe because I can't think about anything else other than this person. And you like, maybe you go back and you read your love letter or your like note that you passed in class and you're like, Jesus, man, like calm down. (laughs) Like it's okay. Your life will not end if this person doesn't be with you, you know? Like, come on, there's like cringy. But that doesn't mean it wasn't real. It doesn't mean it wasn't real. It was a real, honest, authentic... Like, you literally couldn't breathe. You thought that this person was, was everything or whatever, you know? So we can look back on it. We can be like, no, no, there's truth in it. And I don't mean to infantilize it either because... Cringe isn't something that is just, oh, youthful naivete and that therefore new metal is just simply for the infantilized mind. I don't mean that either. My point is is that when you move to a different phase of your life, you can oftentimes look at these different experiences of enjoyment and you can be like, er, a little cringy because the level of authenticity and the things that they were attached to aren't where you attach your authenticity now, maybe. And so it's almost like this dissonance of authentic connections. And I think think in that sense, it kind of is, is important to understand how and in what ways and to what people like make these authentic
1: connections yeah i think you're right on the money dude um cringe is not a moral category it's not a category that's a be-all-end-all all category about what is and what, sh- what should and should not be, right? Yeah. Um, you might no longer enjoy things that are cringe. Like the cringiness ruins it for you as far as a pleasurable activity, right? That's fine. But it can't be like an overriding category where like this is now a thing to be dismissed, right, in general. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I just thought of a really good cringe. My first band, from when I was 15 to 22, I wrote like nine songs about this one girl that I was totally crazy about in high school. Ally, if you're out there listening, we're homies, I get it, but come on, girl. You knew that all that shit was about you, right? <laughs> come on, man. I was crazy about this girl from, like, fucking 16, to, and I couldn't get her out of my head till so like, 21. I was, like, a mad crush. I mean, obviously, I, I got her out of my head. No, but, like, I had a mad... Not, not till 21, but, like, 16 to 19. She was, like, the one, right? And whenever... It was always, like, that's not Allie, man. That's not Allie. That's not Allie. <laughs> Allie was the one. So I can look back at these songs that I wrote when I was fucking 16, and I
1: can be like... Ugh come on dude <laughs> chill out there is life after after that <laughs> dude speaking of, of cringe high school bands um, have I ever shown you the demos of my high school band no uh, one of these days dude I gotta show them to you one of these days <laughs> we should just we should just do it let's just
2: show share it with the world on the podcast bro i'll do I don't i'll think I do some do demos that,
1: given that the, the other guys would have to have give their permission <laughs> well we'll get to do but, that to them <laughs> our people
2: will talk to their people and we'll make it work
1: oh, one geez. of them i don't even know if he's like in the world anymore but yeah we'll see yeah all right <laughs> that sounds good all right so should we Wait. go ahead and move into this interview with Macon? yeah dude let's chat Thanks, everyone. Um, we have a special guest, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Uh, old friend. Can we call you old friend, Megan? Is that yeah, appropriate? I think, <laughs> I think one interaction counts as becoming yeah. an old friend. Yeah, and then there was some emails, some tweets, I guess, yeah. That's...
2: <laughs> yeah, listen, we're, f- yeah. We're, we're all friends on social media and shit like that. In this day and
1: age, that's fucking intimacy, okay? <laughs> yeah. But even more than that, you I think you've garnered the title of friend of the podcast, which oh, is an, right. an honorific that belongs to what, like Michael Burns, Telly? There's only a couple that's of right. people who have that designation. That's right. Well, that's, I mean, I await I, I my badge in the mail. Yeah, I mean, it also <laughs> got, might include like a FBI arrest once you enter the States at some point, but you know. I'm just not cool. Okay, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> oh, sedition. <Yeah. laughs> um, so Austin, do you remember what, did you have to look up what episode Macon was on previously? I didn't. And I'm now I believe it was in it.
2: March. All I know is I believe it was in March. Is that does that sound right? Sounds about right, yeah. So right before yeah, the think,
1: lockdown, do you think, or was it right at the beginning of
2: it? Uh I mean it would have been right right at the beginning of it. Yeah. I remember cuz I was living in my old house cuz I've since moved and uh, I found an email from March where he sent us his book, so I'm assuming that that's when it was
1: okay interesting so that feels like it was 60 million years ago but uh so yeah it It does it was episode 122 on april 8th that we posted it so it was a little couple of weeks into lockdown there yep sounds good so yeah that was approximately 55 years ago in world historical (laughs) time um so we'll probably have to catch up on how your grandkids are doing making and uh you know You've been dead for some time now, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite insensitive you bring it up. <laughs> yeah, it's a real dick moves here on L's at <laughs> So we have an interesting and lovely little essay called The Entertainment that you wrote, which I, I imagine, as the text implies, uh, it makes explicit, really, this is a reference to Infinite Jest, the entertainment, the, mm. the, the locus or object of um, attention amongst uh, various figures in Infinite Jest. Can you say anything about um, this uh, anthology um, that involves the sort of the anthropology of sound, which I guess is a, um, a subdiscipline that I, I knew existed, given that the various nouns mm. in the title would go together. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know that I would yeah. say I know anything about that subdiscipline. So what is anthropology of sound? How did this, anth- this uh, anthology come together or how did you get involved in it? And then finally, what is this uh, entertainment piece about?
0: Yeah. Um, so the Anthropology of Sound uh, collection is this uh, handbook from Bloomsbury that was edited by a um, professor at Copenhagen University called Holger Schulze, who's uh, originally from um, Berlin. And he, I've worked with him on a number of little projects over, the, over recent years, um, mainly because he's, like a, he's a kind of um, musicologist that does things a bit differently. He's more in a thing which they call sound studies. Which itself is kind of an offshoot, more of like literary theory and critical theory, actually. Um, so he's like brings a kind of novel uh, or like a more, more textual, more philosophical approach to uh, musicological and sound based research. And this 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 uh, notion of the anthropology of sound was something he kind of put in the subtitle of a previous book of his called the Sonic Persona, where he kind of um, explores what it what you know how sound it produces a difference in identity and in this he thought how do we you know he, he likes to draw out from uh, particular instantiations and stuff and so he yeah was uh, commissioned to put together this um this anthology uh with some you know great uh, other collaborators like um the sound theorist and sound artist uh, Salome vogelin who writes lots of stuff about possible world theory and how that relates to sound and um there's uh, people like, yeah, Melissa Van Dry, who writes about food, and he has this kind of recurring motif in the titles um, of like definite articles and an object. So like the headphone, the file, the the plaza, the home. And then um, while I was uh, helping as a research assistant uh, on this book, he was like, how about, you know, <laughs> I just uh, read this book by you about uh, Sonic entertainment, basically. Uh, why not write a chapter on the entertainment? So I thought, Okay. I can do that. Also, that's a reference to a book I've written a bunch about, so I'll write more about that book. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the, the approach is actually, um he, had, he kind of came to us with this formula of like um, sort of a, a kind of schematic methodology of we start out from a case. Um, uh, in my particular instance, it was this bizarrely um, tame music festival in Sweden. Um, and then we kind of theorize about that referring to like, kind of theoretical frameworks, and then also going into a kind of historicized past of this phenomenon, and then trying to bring it back into what you imagine a future should be like. Um, And the theoretical framework that kind of came to me, maybe because of what I was reading at the time, which was uh, Leotard's libidinal economy was libidinal economics. (laughs) Um, Mm. Which is a Yeah, it's a fun way into this um, strange, strange event. Can you can you give us uh, the
2: elevator pitch of your essay. So what is it that you're doing? What are you saying? What's the punchline? That kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So yeah, the, the I guess the simple version of it would be that this essential dynamic of, um, capitalism, where it seems to both deterritorialize structures, but then also re-territorialize them, um, is somewhat mimicked in um rites of passage passage within these kinds of societies and you find mm. that in music festivals um particularly because it's about this sort of search for intensity or some sort of self-obliteration which then kind of recuperates itself as you are kind of as a kind of like middle-aged concert goer going back there to like mm. relive some glory days i guess but with a very firm identity about it um but then it's not just that it's more like looking at this general abstract principle and then how sound kind of illustrates um, the, the the limitation of enclosure, uh, but also the kind of enunciation of force that produces a space in itself. And so it's like a kind of multi-level look at this dynamic of deterritorialization and then re-territorialization um, as constitutive of an identity that is, that that works within capitalism, I guess.
2: You used you used the phrase rites of passage. Um, oh, obviously yeah. this is something that that anthropologists really linger over. Rites of passage, uh, in relation to ritual. Can you talk a little bit? Like it, it feels to me like there's something important to say that this is a rite that this is a rite of passage, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess like within anthropology, you have this massively contested notion of the liminoid which is like a, like a liminoid, um, space or process or stage, which I guess is the, is the rite of passage, which is the thing that you, that you enter into and being, and by entering into it, you transform yourself, um, into another stage of your being, which is recognized within the social group. And this is criticized because of essentialisms that reside through that process or that understanding, um, and can be made more sophisticated. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, I, I, and my, I guess, overarching idea for this is is that within the music festival setting, we get we get a commodity you can buy that can l- allow you to kind of put yourself in situations where you'll tear yourself down a little bit, or uh, entirely, or maybe that's yeah, you become a you become a deadhead freak for the rest of your life, I guess, or something <laughs> like that. But you um you you disassemble the um identity that allows you to move through everyday life. Um Now I feel like I feel like yeah. there's
2: there's like a little cultural capital by appealing to like Glastonbury or you talk about Woodstock mm. at one point. What mm. about going to Warp Tour and seeing fucking No Effects and <laughs> Pennywise and the Vandals and Black Flag and like does that count? Is that a right like that was my that was my experience. I didn't go to like the British and European festivals, but I did yeah. have I did have Warp Tour every single year, and that was my thing, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean Warp the- Tour is great if your idea of the socially transformative experience involves some minor sexual assault.
2: Yeah, I actually – that was a that was a strange um, – not strange, but kind of when that happened, that hit me, and I was like, fuck, I, I guess I kind of forget about that because I think I have this idealized vision in my mind of the concert mm-hmm. experience because that's how it always was for me, right? Yeah. Like the most traumatic experience I ever had was when I – Went to see Blink One Eighty Two and Unwritten Law, and my dad convinced the security guards at the Bren Center in Irvine to come get me out because he had found their lyrics online, and he was gonna pull me out. And my dad was a <laughs> my dad was a was a high school pastor and stuff like that. So like you know, hardcore, staunch, reformed evangelical yeah. dude. And he came in, and he I actually saw him in this huge like. 10,000-plus-seat theater, I saw him because I'm down in the mosh pit. I saw him walk down the steps, and I turned to my buddy, and I was like, bro, my dad's here, and he's like, no, stop being paranoid, and I was, like, ducking and hiding from him, and then the dude left, but it, it kind of like affected the rest of the concert. that's yeah. the most traumatic experience I ever had. You know, other than yeah. that, it was always supportive. I lost a shoe, and people yeah. found me and gave my shoes to me. <laughs> if someone if I got dropped when I was being uh, when I was being surfed, someone would pick me up, make sure I was okay. So mm. I never had any of those negative experiences. So I yeah. have a real idealized fantasy in my mind of the concert experience. So that moment that you mentioned that it was like up to 30% of concert goers have um, expressed some sense of uh, assault or uh, uh, recounted some sort of experience of assault. That was pretty crazy for me. That was a very high number.
1: Yeah, Uh, Austin, do you remember my most traumatic concert experience? I think I've said it on the podcast for how it's been a while.
2: I don't remember.
1: When I saw Queens of the Stone Age and Rage Against the Machine in Vegas Mm. in the middle of summer. And uh, so I was wearing basketball shorts and sandals and Rage Against the Machine after Queens of the Stone Age took an hour and a half to come on and they were the last band. So everybody in the entire festival had moved to the main stage. And when they finally came on, people pushed forward so fast and I was maybe five people from the front, uh, five rows of people from the front that I got trampled, lost my basketball shorts and uh, my shoes and was in my (laughs) underwear getting trampled on the ground um luckily I was able to crawl that's to it. find my shorts um Dude, never people found my die shoes. that way <laughs> yeah never like, found my people shoes legit <laughs> well, that's crazy and yeah. uh i, I, cr- I crawled I out guess... of uh, the whole mess and watched the show from the side
2: Yeah. Like that's like, you can almost laugh about that now, but like literally people die like that. I forget. See, that's the thing is when I think about all these, like these rites of passages in my mind, like Mm. I even like how you were talking about how you're like, I'm recounting the moments like of my teenage experience Mm. of when my identity was disrupted and then it kind of came back. And, and even like, even that you're like, you know, now that you're kind of romanticizing the maybe the, the, I don't know, I wouldn't say the, let's say the intensity of that experience. Yeah. Um, but it is true we like i do kind of forget some of the kind of more um like radical elements or like or dangerous elements or like potential potentially uh, threatening elements of these experiences
0: i think it's yeah i mean yeah i I guess like from where we started i mean it's it's these things are entirely contextual and i think that's also the, the one of the larger points is that the the relative like danger or safety of these things has to do with the world outside the festival right. <laughs> like it comes it comes in with it like yeah. that's the I think that's like the, the myth we like to tell ourselves is we produce a certain space and we think that that space is um is in some way safe or purer or better off and like you know it's like a thing that happens in like arts discourse all the time it's always like oh art is this art is that but actually art is just mm. like a thing within capitalism and similarly festivals are definitely huge things within capitalism which as we know is also structured upon racist patriarchy so like it doesn't make sense that like like the three of us don't particularly have like that many harrowing experiences (laughs) from festivals because we're Mm. you know in groups that often commit the harrowing experiences for others um and and because we probably would get away with it and so it's yeah, the thing is, I think again, this is like back to that metaphor, like or that kind of conceptual resonance that comes out of um, sound as a thing which travels beyond the boundary of the festival. The same way that, say, social forces travel beyond the ticket barrier as well. Like you don't, mm. you don't become suddenly the cool guy or like the, um, the 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 non-aggressive person because you've you know paid for entry. You um, actually you probably feel entitled to something, or you could feel entitled to something. Um, mm. And I think that's also the, you know, the the thing is, like, lots of the structures of identity um, construction, which we use to move through day to day life, um, keep people from doing things um, that are violent or violate, like, the kind of personal sovereignties of others, because they, they, you know, they they feel that kind of strict delimitation, which is also a kind of, you know, there's also a sort of a prison element to that. There's a kind of a, an entrapment in the, in this, which is like, you know, people like Deleuze and Guattari write about with the notions of like Oedipal subjectivity and stuff. But this is the interesting dynamic. Like full release of that isn't great either if the powers mm. that, you know, organize that release are, you know, like awfully, um, yeah, unequally distributed um yeah so there's no
2: pure there's no pure line of flight there's no no pure desire expression there they themselves are over coded or coded we might say already by those yeah those structuring principles or those structuring powers yeah
0: or or that or that they can just be maybe not even overcoded maybe more like that just that they that their flows as well. right so it, it depends what like Mm. What forces have carved out the thing that the flow will move across? Mm. Um, so it, yeah, it gonna go back to about, I guess our previous conversation where we were talking all about the CCIU stuff. You think about like Nick Land has this wonderful line about the the death drive being this hydraulic tendency of creativity, and I think that you use that hydraulic metaphor and the flow metaphor, you kind of think, okay, so what does it run across? And if it runs across this topology of like like white supremacist patriarchy and capitalism, then then certain yeah then certain gullies are gonna fill with like detritus right, mm. um, yeah. And that's what I guess I'd say yeah I mean it, yeah I was you know doing the research for this and finding this other person Hannah Bowes research about you know actually who's doing the kind of first hand sociological research on music festivals. It is a shockingly high number. That also like this is from this is from Sweden right. <laughs> this is like from the kind of those bastions of um hmm. of uh, like enlightened feminist culture like it's. But maybe that's also why the number is as high as it is because people feel it's more empowered to report it, but still it's shockingly high. Mm.
1: Yeah, just to quote you on that point, I underlined Mm. this um, in the essay several times because I wanted to especially reference it in talking to you. Mm. Uh, You say that basically libidinal intoxication, the kind of thing we're talking about, Mm. is only a good thing if in the absence of these structures, there are affirmative egalitarian ethics that exceed them. Mm. Um, with the yeah. example being festivals where this massive libidinal intoxication occurs. It often results yep. in the, the erasure of all norms, period. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. How I mean, How is this... Can we just comment real quick and say, how is this different than some sort of... Just for people like listening, mm-hmm. and, and maybe we can work through it, from some mm-hmm. sort of like, a, well, we're all just animals, and once we get into that situation, the kind of Hobbesian, we just go back mm-hmm. to the state of nature kind of thing. Like, what's different... In th- with, with that kind of idea you know like mm. ah dudes just want to be aggressive and those are spaces yeah. where they can just do what they want like in- innately yeah.
0: I, I guess it's because like to the extent that the festival works as a thing at all it tells you that that's not the case because when people like are freed of lots of structures lots of people just ha- want to have a good time like they mm. want to dance and party and, co- and, co- and collaborate and help each other and like you know build a tent or whatever or burn a tent um <laughs> they want to like <laughs> they want to like just like have fun like the majority of people are having fun like 30% is not the majority of people's experience um it's but it's a shockingly high number um so i would say that there's no there's no um, true nature revealed in any of this there's more like i would say um just like what we're seeing more is um how force um can can gather within well can be carried forward by certain tendencies that pre-exist the circumstance and the circumstances let's have a party and a good time but how a party and a good time will mean different things or um results in different tendencies being expressed depending on the on the like the, the undercurrent across that what what that, that runs through that, I guess. And I'm saying, I am guess I'm using undercurrent as a metaphor for, hmm. yeah, white supremacist, patriarchal capitalism. <laughs> it's, hmm. it's, it's shorter to say.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. I, I was really struck hmm. when you were just talking earlier with this idea that, you know, kind of like society comes in or the world, hmm. let's say, comes in, right? And, and it makes me think, so... In in my work on um, Sartre, he develops this mm. notion of what he calls infinite seriality, and the way that I kind yeah. of articulate it in my book is this idea that um, it like impinges on us in all of these pluridimensional ways. So that someone is mm. a Democrat, a Muslim, a woman, um, a, 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 you know, a manager, a this, a that, a Christian, mm. a non-Christian, whatever. Mm. Uh, all these identities. Um, I don't know if she would be a Muslim and a Christian. But, um, but you know, you take a, a singular body, and that body has this kind of like multifarious set of, quote, identities that kind of form this entity. And she moves through those different identities. And those identities mm-hmm. kind of expand and contract in intensity based on mm-hmm. maybe on, 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 on a time when she's near a mosque. She's kind of, quote, more Muslim. Whereas on mm-hmm. Monday, maybe she's more manager. And mm-hmm. um, maybe when she's in a, a, a relationship with her partner, she's more of a lover or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And it makes me think... Then that okay, so when you have these spontaneous moments or these Mm. ecstatic experiences, these sites of deterritorialization, they only deterritorialize some of those intensities or some of those intensities to certain degrees of intensity. And so when you go into this space, those other identities are still there, they still Mm -hmm. form as like not just only constituent on the body but also as constitutive of how that body moves through those spaces Mm -hmm. in relation to all the other bodies who themselves are composites of these kind of like uh infinite serial relations on them and and that's one of the things that i was thinking so like the romanticization of like the event or something like Mm -hmm. that is great because one maybe element of that um pluridimensional serial set of relations can be dissolved or maybe a couple of those can be dissolved mm. right but not all of them are right yeah. and as soon as you come home from the protest as soon as you leave um the 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 picket line as soon mm. as you get out of the festival you have bills that land on your table you have yeah. um family trauma that you need to deal with you have responsibilities whatever mm. and those things don't go away they still haunt us at all times
0: yeah yeah and then they they probably also then inform the articulation yes of your of of the going into that as well i think i think they they will be propelling that in certain ways as well like you know it's the the evening you spend you 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 try and get a little bit drunk to get rid of um some sort of stress or frustration you become a terrible uh, some terrible company for other people right um right (laughs) because it's uh it's not yeah, because I guess that's the the thing. There's yeah, there's there's no um, free or released state, and I guess this is like that's I think the really important insight of um, of uh, Leotard's book, like which I think you know is clearly written as a response to the kind of philosophical naivety of um, of Antigone, which is like you no, know, you don't just get to be free when you <laughs> like when you like out of these structures, you're just yeah. I, as yeah, I think actually that was beautifully beautifully put before with a reference to uh, the, Sartre, the Sartre concept of seriality, was it? Um, yeah. Because, yeah, and because they are, yes, different elements that impinge from different directions at different times at different mm. degrees of intensity, which then, yeah. to the extent that they can be disassembled, are disassembled to different degrees. Mm. And then, and the non-static nature notion of, uh, the, non- the non-static um, nature of that means that you're actually in a constant, I guess, ethical negotiation, really. Um, because it's, yeah, because it is about the dynamic relationships between these things, which are in, in, in flux and movement and how, yeah, how does one relate to that? I don't know. That's, yeah, and I, I have yeah. just
2: one more quick rejoinder, and then I'll stop talking because mm-hmm. I've been gabbing a lot. And I saw Troy's PDF, and I know he highlighted a bunch of things, so I'm <laughs> sure he has lots of things to say. Um, but um, so I've been reading Lukash in a mm-hmm. reading group, um, and we're reading through History and Class Consciousness. And one of the mm-hmm. things that, you know, um, Lukash gets criticized by Moish Postone, for example, is that Lukash, and kind of like traditional Marxism, as Postone calls it, is that they um, they critique labor I'm sorry, they critique capital from the standpoint of labor or Mm Lukács calls it like this, the kind of like special point of view or the vantage, whatever. Right. And so this makes me also think then that this is also a critique against not just the anti-Oedipal romanticization of desire as a pure Mm -hmm. line of flight, but also we could then critique something like the party. You could critique um, the group, um, maybe in Sartre's sense, you can critique class based politics because they, too, are contaminated right by these mm-hmm. serial processes and i know mm-hmm. that a lot of a lot of people that are like staunch kind of maybe more traditional marxist class based marxists they don't like to hear that no. because they want to valorize the standpoint of labor. They want to romanticize well Maybe they don't want to romanticize it, but they end up romanticizing the position of the working class mm. from having some sort of achieved this, uh, as Lukács calls it, an objective scientific perspective, right? That, that their method is the true method that has somehow um, allowed them to see the objective truth of the reality of capitalist exploitation, mm. And so, what I wonder is—is is what we can learn maybe from Leotar, and what you exam- examine here, is that actually that purity, that position itself, is always already contaminated, right? Yeah. And and that it's really a kind of self-aggrandizing and self-legitimizing narrative to kind of posit that you even have that kind of vantage um, in and to and against the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. like that's a yeah that that's like a concern that haunts much of my work like h- how on earth can i possibly mm. like um comment on the enjoyment of others like what what vantage point do i presuppose that i have as a, like what analytical insights do i uh, purport to be bringing to this and, and i think this is like yeah it's a I'm, I'm actually reading right now um just to add more confusing things to this pile um <laughs> but uh frank frank willison's new book um which is just called afro pessimism and yeah, yeah. that again is making that that point on another yeah another the next metal level on of like yes like class like class consciousness being um in, in like yeah the, the critique of lukash of like like well okay that's only from within this sort of like capitalist system you see that and that's also then in leotard and then you know for Wilson it's like actually this whole redemption narrative you're going on is structured around anti-blackness mm. <laughs> so and that's like foundational to this form of social organization and also the form of its critique, like, okay, that's, so yeah, like this, this notion of no pure position, I think is, I think it has to be like brought far more into like cultural analysis in general. Um, It's tried. And I think a lot of effort's been made with that, but there's always this kind of reliance that, oh, theory will win out in some way. It'll actually theorize itself into, into the, the, that
1: position eventually. But I think
0: it has to be, I think even more (laughs) self-critical.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so if I could step back for a second, I do want to talk about this um, this idea of the no position. But before that, the discussion that, that we were having, it reminds me a bit about something that Austin and I have been discussing a lot on the podcast lately. Mm. Um, from my point of view, working through a lot of uh, Kant and Hegel and from Austin's point of view with his Lukash reading group. Yeah. And just the, the, the very general and broad distinction between positive and negative accounts of freedom. And yeah. that mm. this idea of... What happens when you unleash these sort of repressed flows of desire, right? Mm -hmm. Do you end up with something like a uh, a sort of normatively good or affirmative freedom, or is there sort of chaos and destruction? And Mm -hmm. seems like what you're pointing to is well, you got to look at the interpenetrating um system that's producing that context right that's gonna let you know whether or not you're having a a kind of a freedom you would want to affirm or or deny and oftentimes and especially given the context that we that we're talking about here um they're gonna be they're gonna be bad right because what's Mm. what's left over when you take the mask off is just like the a face burnt to to a crisp right Mm. um Mm. to use a very unfortunate metaphor and so Mm -hmm. To tie that back into positive and negative accounts of freedom, it strikes me that, I mean, this is just a, the classic problem of freedom in, like, mm-hmm. German idealism, right? Um, do you take the sort of classical empiricist account of freedom as being almost exhausted by the sense of negative freedom? Well, that's when you mm-hmm. get this philosophically naive sense that you can unleash desire, mm-hmm. and then that's sort of, you you achieve the good, right? Or yes. it's the closest you're going to get to the good. Um but if you take the sort of Kantian and Hegelian account, um, Hegel has this great phrase it's a mistake to think of int- the intellect being in one pocket and the will in another, hmm. Hmm. by which I think he means um, free will is really just acting for reasons or specifically the right reasons. It's not some sort of hmm. purely negative account. Um, hmm. Yeah. Now, that, I think, ties into this question of, of positionality because mm. what we'd want to reject in Kant and Hegel is sort of the, like in Kant, the, the, the teleology of reason. And in yeah. Hegel, many things. <laughs> There's some to that. Um, yeah. And so maybe this this idea of thinking about well, what can we actually say to people in different contexts who have different positions who, especially yeah. as as three white guys, mm-hmm. um, we would want to, and this goes into even just our discussion that we've been having recently in the podcast when we're going through Marcus Gabriel's mm-hmm. book, Fields of Sense, mm-hmm. when it comes to modes of his concept that he borrows from Frege and modes of presentation. Mm-hmm. And that it seems like maybe you can retain the positive account of freedom in the sort of Kantian Hegelian style and marry it with a pluralism Um, of reason Mm. and that if you can somehow achieve that, then you would have something like um, this ability or capacity for constructing the ethical domain that you're talking about that you mentioned in this Mm -hmm. essay that could undergird um, a a positive construction of of society that would allow you to have unleashing flows of desire that would be positive. I don't know that's a yeah. lot but i'm just tying together all the different things yeah, yeah. we've been talking yeah. about the last few weeks and it seems to all yeah. coalesce around similar things
0: no that's a really exciting group of things together um yeah i, I think that the, the way that i guess, guess want to articulate that is um i think that it's it's very much like why i thought it's interesting to bring ethics into this discussion when i basically start off with basically an aesthetic critique of the festival is like again to collapse these two things to a kind of a, a place where i think there's some sort of useful um relationship between them um and that being that you know this kind of this notion that there's this this fundamentally unreasonable thing about the kind of aesthetic gesture or like the moment of aesthetic judgment um because you will never be able to fully justify this to anybody else about why this is a preferential way of being and i think that's then ties into like one of the things about um like a position we might find an ethical way of being in the world, or being in the festival, if you will. Um, uh, no, mm-hmm. don't do that. Um, How to deal be... that part of being no, in time? <laughs> yeah. just being it just just being in the party. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, the uh, is that for that what we might consider that to be um, a ethically virtuous position in this uh, will not be necessarily virtuous from the standpoint of the system. Um, I like, you know, kind of like thinking about um, Bataille's notion of evil, right? It's this thing which is, um, you know, it's it's the thing that criticizes the status quo. Like it is, you know, completely synonymous with evil from the, the standpoint of the status quo. And so, like, there will be people who will be upset by ways of being that, um, that affirm a different form of social organization, like the, the kind of classic example of this is like the, um, uh, the 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 Public Order Act of 1988, I think, in the UK, or maybe it's like the early 90s instead, where they, um, which was basically a piece of legislation um, that was introduced to shut down uh, illegal warehouse wa- raves, ostensibly because of reasons of um, drug abuse. But really, it's like, actually, because this is a form of social organization that was not engaging with like the reproduction of capital is like people buying like a little bag of ecstasy on a weekend and then just like dancing Hmm. their ass off um, to music so you have this like law in the british like statutes which specifies you know like um, music characterized by um, repetitive strong beats uh, as being an illegal uh, characteristic if it's played in a certain location (laughs) Um, and that's the degree to which you have this this desire to to try and curtail different ethical forms of organization and social interaction because once you have that taking place you start to you start to lose control of um the production of values
1: maybe i mean i think every every like uh, what was i going to say every like early blur song kind of sounds the same does that count as repetitive like are they gonna... <laughs> How I, think, broadly I think are we interpreting this statute yeah
0: I think, I think from the perspective of a conservative minister, yes. <laughs> yeah. I would say so. so I'm, I'm kind of thinking of
2: uh, a few other kind of related things here. And I wonder, cause this also, this also kind of, I'm going to get back to sound here, but let me f- mm. f- see if I can kind of rabbit trail my way there. Okay. So we're talking about this, this distinction between like negative freedom and positive freedom. Mm. And I really love what Troy just said a minute ago. I think Mm. you said something about a potential for a pluralism of reasons. Is that what he said? Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, So Ray Brassier has written Mm. a critique of this essay by a scholar named Suhail Malik, who wrote an essay called Ontology Mm. of Finance. And Mm. in the Ontology of Finance, Malik basically argues that finance operates kind of irrationally, we might say, a sort of unreason, right? Um, I can't remember exactly how he calls it, but it's like something about differential. It's not just the price differential, but it's like the mechanism of price differential, which is kind of, we could think in terms of like Derridian terms, like difference is where he draws Mm -hmm. from, right? Mm -hmm. Brassier critiques Malik and he says, okay, this is an interesting ontological intervention and there's some value here, but there's no political project here. Whereas Malik thinks that once we understand finance, Um, as being uh, from within this Derridian frame that it's essentially a political project. And he actually thinks that there is something emancipatory, kind of maybe in a lines of flight kind of Mm D&G kind of way, right, Um, as well. And Brassier says there's no political project here because there's no reason Right? There's no mm-hmm. rationality. There's no norms. There's nothing that we're going towards. And so you can't actually have a political project without reason. And so then this is making me think of like Quentin Meissou, who Brassier is kind of, you know, like they're one of the four, four horsemen of speculative realism. I know they've distanced themselves from that. But yeah. so one of Meissou's things, and I've been thinking about, I think Meissou also kind of fetishizes a notion of negative freedom with his mm. idea of hyper chaos, which he says it basically rejects the principle of sufficient reason, right? And Frank Ruda writes about this, and he says that the reason is because necessity, if you if you have a principle of sufficient reason, that implies some sort of necessity, and necessity is unthinking dogmatism. It's unreasoned dogmatism. So I'm mm-hmm. thinking here, so if you've got mayasus, negative freedom, hyperchaos, rejection of a principle of sufficient reason, um, because reason uh, is unthinking and leads to dogmatism, that's one critique of reason and kind of support of negative freedom. Um, or I'm sorry, Ruta then kind of critiques Maesu and says, but he actually sneaks in his own kind of like, um, his own principle of sufficient reason, which is that everything is contingent. But anyway, that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, and then you take kind of Brassier's critique of the idea of like lines of flight or like uh, a politics of differentiality, um, would this then like allow something potentially theoretically? We don't really know. We haven't finished the book, but of a kind of pluralism of reasons to allow for some kind of ability to mitigate uh, of certain power structures. Let's say those serial mm. power structures from engaging in the re-territorialization of flows. And so, if we have a politics like that's a pluralist politics of reason, does that mm. does that um, get us out of the kind of may assume critique of a principle of sufficient reason that is like a universal status and then also makes sure that we don't kind of fall into the lines of flight kind of politics of differentiality and then doesn't also kind of like put us into this like dogmatic position where it's like, no, here is a a status of reason or a way of reasoning by which we determine what is the political. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there a way that maybe a pluralism of reasons allows us to have a kind of positive um theory uh, a way of almost like forcing some sort of collective action around reason rationality norms values etc cetera, etc cetera. does that make sense okay and then real quick and then how that fits into sound you talk about how sound i know i'm sorry uh how sound is kind of like um i don't remember exactly how you phrase it but it's towards the end but mm-hmm. how sound to me is like the the kind of physicality i was thinking yeah. sound is like the materiality that yeah. is that is like um imminent to um and like let's say beneath or more fundamental than even the semantic or any of the formal notions so yeah i don't i I know that's a lot too um but that's Mm -hmm. kind of what my mind was like i was really intrigued by how sound because we think of it as being sort of like just irrational but maybe there's a maybe there's a rationality to sound or a way that sound can fit within this pluralism of reasons does that does that make sense
0: I think that makes, I think that makes sense. I think like it, it, actually weirdly the last bit kind of helped me kind of make it to get together a little bit. Cause it's, yeah. I think it's not just, cause it's not just like, I think the model falls short when you have this notion of a multiplicity of reasons between like sort of political subjects, because that's just too simple a picture. Cause it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite capture what a, hu- what, well, what we're going to call a human being for lack of a better term um, is uh, cause it's also about like, you know, this, you know, kind of the base materialism that comes up is like the play that um that uh, uh Steve Goodman has on um Bataille's thing of like, you know, this this um, underlying materiality which is um of course revealed or emphasized, um or you know brought intensified in, in, in the interactions of the sound, tells you about processes that have their own kind of reasoning system, even if it doesn't become um semantic, like it's like bodies, mm. you know, behave in particular ways following from kind of reasonable, um, you know, you could, you could decode it, uh, in a certain way. And that also then relates to this, um, overlaying of, uh, semiotics and then systems and then institutions and then, uh, economies and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, I think certainly yeah, this notion of, I mean, also it does sound like you probably should read infinite chest. Um, african (laughs) conversation but that but there's that notion of like because like what's beautiful about that book and i guess was writing in general is like he's quite good at making sure everyone has their reasons um Mm, and and that and that they're taken seriously um and you know even when it's, it's kind of funny but it's like you know what there's a rationale um and it's not absent it's not i think that's yeah the notion that i think also what's a strength about this point of view is it seems to be more it sounds to me more ontologically accurate to say that there is this multiplicity of reasons and that, mm. y- and that you, there will not be a master a kind of meta location from which one can judge the most appropriate one, but they will have to right. just kind of, they will have to do some sort of combat between each other. <laughs> there will be some sort of tussle. There will be some exchange of force because they will not all be able to win. Yes. Um, there, there is no
1: highest good um, no, achievable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's,
0: and I think that's just like the, um, like the problem I have when you hear like liberal discourses on racism Yes. Um, is they tend to be saying like well you know we'll just call come together and eventually you know they'll yeah. just come round to recognizing the uh humanity of of, of, like, you know, <laughs> of people of color it's like no you kind of have to smash it, <laughs> like, yeah. it because like you said
2: like appealing yeah. to the work of, of the afro pessimists like yeah. sexton and wilderson because yeah. then they realize that what is the reconvening principle the reconvening principle is whiteness is what it means to be yeah. human Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's why liberal multiculturalism or liberal diversity narratives are all ultimately some form of like false universalism. They're like they're, yeah. they're ultimately an oppressive hegemonic regime.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, because they basically will. Well, I mean, they also will allow in the most terrifying authoritarians because, you know, for the sake of, of diversity, I guess, um, because <laughs> because it's like that, you know, there's no standpoint from which because eventually there should be some sort of exchange in the marketplace of ideas where the highest good will be realized. But there isn't the highest good. There's just a lot of competing values and they will be competing in lots of different ways. And I think accepting that as the premise would be the basis of a political project. So, yeah, to then classify um, things that appear in finance as unreason is just like it really skips too many steps. I mean, like, you just have to look at someone like, yeah, like Luciano Parisi or Raymond Monomaro's work on... Um, on like finance and or like a, a machine learning and you say like well it's just non-human reason it's just hu- reason happening at a level of abstraction that humans can't track um and that which does not mean it's not then actually um infected with the biases of um enculturated humanity but it's but um but that the ways in which they proliferate we can't actually follow so it's actually kind of more frightening But also may have more potential we don't we never really know it's a a nice tension in their work um yeah i think okay yeah but how do we get back to like positive and negative from this i think maybe we're talking about the fact that actually we have to have yeah there's not neither can supersede can they this is like center stuff about synthetic reason isn't it like they have to kind of become entwined with one another otherwise they kind of yeah either position is just totally naive um, well yeah well that's yeah. the thing
1: though is there's yeah. an asymmetry between the accounts right because yeah classically negative freedom concepts they exclude notions of positive freedom as not being freedom whereas positive freedom concepts to mm. some degree include negative freedom
0: necessarily right. as part yeah. of
1: the achievement of positive freedom now do they do so in an appropriate way classically no right they do right. so in ways that are usually mm. authoritarian and racist or at least, mm. to, to some respect, right? But at mm. the very least, every positive account of freedom is going to have to include at least a minimal account of negative freedom as a process or means through which to achieve positive freedom. So there's an asymmetry there, where one's exclusive and the other is inclusive.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's well, very I want interesting. To, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I we want need to, ask to work, you, we, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just to say. Yeah, that needs to be. That needs to be Ethicist, get on it. He's <laughs> a, ethicist to the
1: to the barricades. Um, yeah. Um, so you mentioned in your in your previous comments a bit about the concept of base materialism, which oh, yeah. is a lovely name, first of all. And also <laughs> Thundercat is gonna name his next album Base Materialism. Right? Oh, see. That, <laughs> that would be amazing. And it would be album of the year, no doubt. Yeah. Um, Thundercat, Kamasi Washington, guest star. I mean it's a perfect feature, right? Mm. So I have here <laughs> the idea base materialism as something like when sonic articulations resistant to becoming semantic instead become tactile and you kind of talked a little bit about that in your last comment but you you moved on from it quickly and i wanted to ask you about that because i think i have a sense of what's going on there but i wanted you to talk more about what it means to be resistant to becoming semantic and then to become tactile instead
0: yeah so what Happens so yeah. This notion of base materialism is something that I get from reading a guy called uh, Steve Goodman, who's um, he's kind of of that CCRU set um, back from the nineties, but also he's the founder of the label Hyperdub. So he's the one that brought everybody Burial. Um, oh okay. But he's also a philosopher, and he wrote this book called Sonic Warfare, um, uh, in the, about ten years ago now, and in this he. Kind of riffs on this concept he's borrowing from Bataille, which was that, which in Bataille's critique of Marxism, saying that the kind of the base within that was some was kind of an idealized concept and he wasn't getting base enough to actually get to what real materialism would be, um, and then it's kind of a riff on that, playing with this notion of the physicality that's implied by the experience of base frequencies, um, is is kind of is emphasizing a kind of um, bodily experience that by just virtue of experiencing it problematizes the processes of of like semantic understanding. Um, And and that's because like, again, like you followed this through like a a frequency spectrum thing, like you're gonna be looking more towards the mid range to find things that are articulable as semantic concepts and like words, like that's that's where what's classically called reason exists. and then everything, every kind of experience which is outside of that space is kind of regarded as as base for being base, for example. Uh, <laughs> but what that, um, and usually what this is pointing to, I think is um, when it's pointing to a kind of a limitation that happens within um, a great deal of sort of a kind of Western thought, which is that when things are non-semantic, they are not valid, they're not valid experience or they are somehow uncivilized or somehow um yeah just just not 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 appropriate to consider and that basically means basically all the body of, of experience all kind of like the the qualia of things is not something that you can really um argue about properly or base uh, an ethics upon or come to an understanding through and and the, i guess the claim is that the kinds of um experiences that are possible through particularly bass driven music are kind of imply new well kind of produce spaces for different kinds of communality or um ethical interaction um and you know like this common example would be like the dance floor or something um Hmm. but of course like what's nice again is that one you when you read when you read this long the kind of like larger discussion of like, and and, and uh, also goodman's clearly writing aware of all the literature we've been talking about so far um you know this is a contested space as well like uh so he has this kind of in the, in his book sonic warfare he has like base being this um force that can produce these kind of you know communal areas where you produce these new senses of sociality or ethical relationships but it's also a way in which you um, can terrify the people of gaza by having a low flyover. Mm, mm. Like, this is a very ambivalent phenomenon, but it's the phenomenon that comes from um, the recognition of vulnerability that that is corporeal existence. And that you cannot reason your way out of corporeal existence simply by, um, you know, pitching up your uh, communicative utterances to um, frequencies that are appropriate to the articulation of verbal communication. Like, that's basically the thing, it's like trying to work out a sort of continuum of these ideas. Um yeah. And I'm working on a thing right now, uh which I'm gonna present next I think I mentioned I i, I st- kind of start gesturing towards this in my book, but I wanna try and flesh it out as a better idea. I think you see this dynamic played out very well in um This Is America by Childish Gambino, mm-hmm. where he's alternating between um sections which kind of seem to be like riffing on or playing with this notion of a kind of liberal humanism will triumph and there'll be the end of racism through a kind of like Hmm. romanticized notion of what it was like um of how america received martin luther king with these kind of mm-hmm. uh african infected um uh kind of choral sections or like gospel sections and then and the beat comes really, in. yeah yeah really <laughs> aggressive really aggressive trap and like this drone low bass and saying actually no this is like there's like threat there's dread there's there's pain to this and i think mm. that contrast is like is jumping between these kind of coded systems and he's like talking to different audiences with it. So there's a kind of code switching thing happening by emphasizing this base materialism.
1: Is there something,
2: is there something unique about sound without essentializing that, that is more productive for these types of, um, for these types of effects, than mm. sight, for example. And I'm thinking, so I recently read Spectre, uh, Spectres of Marks by uh, Derrida. Mm. And one of the things I noticed is the language he uses is um, he speaks oftentimes about uh, like sound or hearing or listening to. Um, as kind of appealing to this resonance that is beyond Mm. the metaphysics of presence, right? Whereas it seems that sight and looking is always related Mm. to, or at least often related to, representation and conceptualization. Whereas there's something about sound or maybe the Mm. sonic, at least in Derrida, and I wonder if you would would agree, that is sort Mm. of excessive of those tendencies towards what we might call like violent abstraction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I... I I wrestle with this a lot because there's a lot of like kind of sonic exceptionalism within like sound for these discourse that I spent some time being very frustrated with. Mm. Like, oh, sound will solve all your political problems. mm. (laughs) Um, uh, But I think... Well, Troy likes to
2: talk about when you just go to a metal concert and everyone puts up their hands with the devil horns or they do the guitar riff when there's like Mm. a gnarly guitar solo. Everyone's (laughs) just in the flow, man. That's the site of freedom right there. That's the spot.
1: man. Hardcore shows are the opposite, right? But metal shows are great. <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah there's
0: a lot, lot more angst in the hardcore show uh, <laughs> there's no f- freedom's impossible there yeah um, man it's, cause it's it's it's
2: middle class yuppie men like me who were frustrated with their dads and living mm-hmm. in the bubble of orange county and we need a place to go and release our frustration that we were told we couldn't do by all of the trying to be nice and shit like yeah, that and- that's what the hardcore shows are for
0: and in some way, it becomes a perfect like encapsulation of the philosophy of Foucault in that way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never escape power. Uh, no, I mean, we're joking yeah.
1: here, Mika, but I think that what you're calling base materialism, or what's being yeah. called base materialism, could also be called riff materialism because, yeah, yeah. especially in like doom right. metal, the yeah. riff plays a pretty similar role.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I think the hmm, what would I say about this? I think there's, I think to say what 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 does sound have? I think sound. I think any kind of aesthetic experience has the capacity for all the things that we're talking about, but I think they all have different tendential uh, yeah. qualities that bring, that allow them to be more easily or more readily amplified in, in, in forms that we find to be socially coherent mm. or like, uh, or semiotically coherent. Um, like it's very difficult to get people dancing to a painting, but I imagine it can happen. Uh, like it would just be surprising <laughs> because we haven't got the the systems of organization or of like the aesthetic schema for it. Um, that being said, I, yeah. So I think that there are the way that I would phrase this position is that I think what sound does is it just more readily short circuits, this route to corporeality. Um, and when it does that a lot of different things can happen from there. Um, And I think it's I think a lot of that has to do with the kind of vulnerability that happens when you're made to be in some way, maybe just effectively conscious of the of your body as a body in the world affected by forces, Um, which, yeah, which I can think is like, which can be the excitement of the riff or it can be the excitement of the drop or it can be the terror of like the drone. (laughs) <laughs> um, I mean,
2: does this relate, uh, Troy, to the Kantian sublime in the third critique? This is something that Deleuze draws from in Difference and Repetition to think about thought as being something that excites from the outside, right? Um, are you getting this kind of Kantian sublimin, sublime thing going on here as well? Yeah, a I, was, bit?
1: I was actually just about to bring this up that, yeah. you know, one thing about the Kantian sublime and the critique of judgment. So, you know, the, the Kantian sublime is uh, as similar to what you're talking about, making. and I'm sure that it mm-hmm. comes from you know, the OG aesthetic mm-hmm. judgment, uh, our understanding mm-hmm. of aesthetic judgment, right, is that the sublime experience is when you experience something that you can't put under a concept because of its Mm. immensity or Mm. something like that right Mm. because you can't place it under a concept you experience a combination of excitement and fear and Mm. everything Mm. else that characterizes the sublime but Mm. then for Kant of course the point of that experience is to then remind yourself over reflection or under reflection that you Mm. are actually able to cognize it um yeah. and therefore you're reminded mm. of yourself as a rational being mm. also a morally rational being and then mm. eventually the, this is what people forget i think they kind of stop there and say, mm. oh here's like you know the kantian bullshit right the elevation mm. of rationality over everything else mm. but they forget is that the point of that even is that once you're sort of reminded by the sublime and after reflection of being a moral being i um, oriented towards a goodwill and whatnot that's the basis of forming community so really mm. what Kant's trying to do is tie Mm. aesthetic experience with Mm. the Mm. ethical commonwealth, right? His goal of building together a community of people with goodwill. So Mm. he gets there through the means of this, like reminding yourself that you're a rational being and stuff, but it seems like that's not really the necessary part, right? The important part of the concept of the sublime is that there's something about aesthetic experience that builds community, right? Yeah. And so we're trying to, characterize like mm. what is that process how does it happen and how does it happen well yeah this is
0: yeah this is an interesting thing because i think I, I i would imagine i would imagine that it would kind of like it would perturb goodman to be to be put like to say that he was doing kantian uh <laughs> work mm-hmm. i think but i think but i think maybe for the very very reasons you're saying but i think there's also this yeah because i think i think it i don't think it has to work in that direction to because i think there's this community thing could work in a different way i think it could I, yeah i because i wonder mm, yeah i haven't read enough Kant closely enough to really be able to get into this properly but but i always got this like i mean obviously yeah you get this like backup thing like oh the og coming in with his uh with his with his reason <laughs> but it's <laughs> uh but that i think it's that that elevation or that i think there's I think there's not enough uh, read of the potential of the moment in that, of like the understanding that is simultaneous with the experience, or um, or like irreducibly entangled in that. And I think it kind of also imposes this notion of conceptualization that is entirely um, semantic. I think there's other forms of conceptualization, other forms of understanding at stake in, or I think that would be the. So I think yeah these are very related um creatures but I think that mm. it's gonna, it's going to be the, the 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 quibbling details of these of of different different philosophers and different I think different priorities as well well, um, yeah, what, what I think, I think yeah.
1: what I think, I'm getting at making is, mm. yeah, I think you're right that the Kantian mm. version of it, the sort of mm. doctrinaire mm. version of it, mm. it's purely semantic in the sense that mm. base materialism is going to reject, right? Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: what if, since since it's not really that, since that's not the point of yeah. the yeah. Kantian sublime? That's sort of how it's cast in, like, you know, yeah. um, aesthetics 101 courses or whatever. Is yeah. there an aesthetics 101 course? I don't know. Um, <laughs> that should, really should the be. point of it. Yes, yeah, there should be. The yeah. point of it is to yeah. Um, build community, right? Ethical community. Yeah. Then, yeah. what if we, we, if we recast it that way and we sort of reject the notion that, well, you don't have to do this mediatory recognition mm. of yourself as a uh, purely rational being or whatever, whether that's even Kant's picture or not. Um, instead, this, this sublime experience where you're not able to place a thing under a concept, which sounds similar to me with resistant mm. to semantic. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. seem kind of parallel to me. What yeah. if staying in that state itself, in some way, is what builds community? Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I like that a lot. <laughs> Stay, staying, staying
2: in that state—is that would that not be a sort of um, notion of like perpetual revolution or like the permanent evental space? Or is that not maybe a little bit too close to like d and G notion of like? like a schizo uh, schizo flows or anything like that?
0: I mean, it could be, but I guess it depends like on how, I guess it depends on how you understand structure. Um, yeah. I think that, I think that if, I think that if everything, <laughs> something I talk about my, my, my partner a lot about, um, because she's a composer who gets, gets called chaotic, but uh, it's not chaotic. It's <laughs> just very, very, it's just very complexly structured. Um, it's yeah. If you, if, if we're talking about just like descending into chaos, then yes, that would be, that would be going towards the schizo flow kind of thing or a perpetual revolution. But I think that this notion of, I think it's, it's that, cause that's the other motion I understand from Kant's aesthetic theory is that it's that the, 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 the beautiful is the thing that you would suppose others would also arrive at that judgment of. Right. But yeah, I think that subjective suppo-
1: universality. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I think that that motion is, I, I, again, I can't properly critique Kant on this, but yes, bullshit with impunity. Okay. Yeah. Um, It's, <laughs> <laughs> to me, the, the important thing isn't, isn't the realization that you should judge this object as if it were, or that others would also do so. It's that others could also do so. So it's almost like, I guess, I don't know, it's kind of like rancier, um, but it's mm. like that kind of. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. that earlier. Yeah. 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 So it's that both that opening up that you know the the assumption that because I experience this thing as, as intensely beautiful or enjoyable or I'm getting this pleasure from it that there that there's the possibility that another might as well and that shared enjoyment it does seem like the basis on which to build some sort of community
2: what is wrong
0: with a little bit of romanticism man like i am fine
2: honestly like i am fine we just okay before we did lukash we were reading cedric robinson's black marxism and he is yeah. an unabashed romantic he's inspired by surrealism <laughs> and he believes that black being is this unique space now does he fetishize and romanticize this notion of black being yes maybe we could maybe expand on it and call it like a zero point or some sort of mm. site of potency and and de-essentialize it a little bit. But I'm okay with a little <laughs> bit of this romanticism sometimes, you know? Mm. I don't know. And I think I need to just stop feeling the pressure of everybody critiquing romanticism and kind of try to see, like, what is what is it that, again, is useful, maybe, about yeah. thinking of these kind of romantic ideas. But I just feel this fucking pressure from post-structuralism to constantly <laughs> yeah. be like, don't essentialize, don't essentialize, don't essentialize, you know? But yeah. fuck, man. That's my shitty well, minute. Sorry. <laughs> well, here's,
1: a, here's a thesis based upon what you just said, Macon. Um, yeah. Opening yourself up to an experience that other people could experience in the same way, mm. that itself is an ethical act. Yeah. It's opening mm. yourself up to a vulnerability to yeah. experience something compossibly with other people. Mm. Like, so it's it, like a it,
2: dispositional yeah. ethics rather than um, a value ethics
1: almost i mean at the very least i mean i think you probably have to have both right but Mm. that itself seems to be like if you can get to that point then you're an ethical subject
0: yeah yeah Mm. yes yeah because then you yeah because like you're you're defining your being as being in relation so that's or like you're trying to understand your being as being in relation
2: yeah i'm getting wafts of levinas here right (laughs) (laughs) kind of like openness to the other
1: that's just yeah. flatulence,
2: dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, hey, I look, think, I, I, yeah. I'm just I'm I'm kind of um, noticing the time, and <laughs> I would say let's let's try to, to wrap this up um, real quick yeah. though before before we give, get into final thoughts. And of course, we can chat for a few more minutes. It's not like we have to mm. put a button on it now. But I do have. Do you remember that meme that went out on like that subreddit of like relationships? I think it was our relationships, and it was that. Mm uh that i think it was a woman who's a physicist and she mm-hmm. was like yeah i'm like in the a relationship with a hegelian yeah. yeah hey macon is that what it's like with you with your composer partner <laughs> is she
1: <laughs>
2: she's like the Wait,
1: physicist can we get her on next time <laughs> yeah. Um, is, yeah is that
0: that would be good actually yeah. Just, yeah listen to what she has to say you have the composer um, <laughs> and the
2: theorist right and like she's just constantly like come on it's just about the music and you're like no but you don't understand sonic flows <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay just uh, no, that, that,
0: yeah, that, 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 that'd be the wrong composer <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah no,
2: but go ahead final final thoughts and yeah. things like that on like go ahead and yeah like i said you don't have to rush it up now but i'm just uh i'm mindful of the time at this point
0: yeah yeah i i, I mean i don't i think i i'm I, i'm 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 kind of i'm good but i also like i'm, I'm good to talk more so i, I if there's anything else um uh, I kind of wrote uh-huh. the thing, so I don't really know what's in it.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess one one way to, to yeah. maybe sum it up, making is mm. this is you know consistent also with the formal structure of um, your book that we talked about last time mm. that you were on, mm. where you're attempting to see in something like the music festival, right? Mm. Both the the dangers and the I don't know what hopes, ambitions, positive ambitions. Like, yeah. Um, can you sum up? just really quickly i think we've talked a lot about the dangers yeah. what's the what's the hope or positive ambition for sonic entertainments in your mind
0: um yeah i think the the, the hope would be that it is 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 i guess like something like a, a communities of vulnerability coming up out, out of it like recognition yeah. of of your shared fallibility and vulnerability and the need for care to emerge in those situations, um, mm-hmm. I think the and and that to be like the basis of of ethical life and then perhaps a positive political project and and that not only that it's like um, preventing harm in those ways but also like that this is to to produce sites of enjoyment to produce sites of pleasure that again aren't aren't conditional upon some other um, justification but the fact that enjoyment is is enjoyment in itself um and that seems to be a a a thing worth protecting um because it can be because because you're aware of how it is for yourself and how therefore it could be for others Mm. so that's that's what i think what it could teach you is yeah the 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 commonality of enjoyment and the preciousness of it (laughs) and and that 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 and the oppression is also is entangled in its commonality. Mm.
1: Yeah,
0: that's Maybe. awesome dude.
1: And that's why you should listen yeah. to 100 gex. 100 gex. Yeah. Do you know yeah. them Megan? No, I don't know them. Oh, it's like hyperpop, you know, the crazy like uh, <laughs> electrospastic chaos <laughs> music. Right, I got to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> I I just wrote it down too.
2: <laughs> that's a that's a sticky leaves for everybody how do you spell gex uh
1: g-e-c-s
2: okay 100 gex awesome
1: oh yeah you'll oh, shoot
2: macon <laughs> yeah thanks so much brother for yeah. for joining us and chatting with us um if you write anything in the future send it through to us if you want to chat it'd be nice to get you on you know yeah. um periodically throughout here and we can keep kind of expanding these yeah. conversations so like you said like there's so much more we could say but also we could stop here and um you know we say this a lot but we'll just put an ellipsis at the end rather than a <laughs> button you know
0: well yeah that'd be i mean i'm glad to have uh, yeah connected with you guys because it's really fun to talk um it's uh conversations you don't get to have all the time at the business
1: school <laughs> sometimes yes. you find the pockets yeah, I- of them <laughs> Yeah, I really loved this, Mick, and thanks so much yeah. for, for coming on. I mean, yeah. you kind of have a seat at the Owls at Dawn table like Elijah does at the, <laughs> at the Passover table, right? It's empty, we're waiting for yeah. you to show up uh, whenever you want. Wonderful, right, great. Man. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll right. be in touch with some
0: virtuality stuff soon enough, then. <laughs> deal, <laughs> my, deal, my deal, deal. Thing. All right, well, thanks a lot for... All right, cool. Well, hey, well, where can, before yeah. we go, where
2: can people oh. find you on the internet, your work? Plug plug your stuff. Do you have an academia page or a web page? Right. Whatever, plug, plug it all.
0: I got an academia page, but I mean, there's, yeah, um, you can find most of my stuff actually because of my um, weird name. I, I own com, So um, it's all there because <laughs> I okay. have a we'll put a link. We'll put a yeah. link
2: down below so people can click it too. Yeah.
0: And if you want to um, hear me uh, conversing with um, my composer partner, you can listen to a podcast called uh, Truffle Pigs where we just riff in a similar way like this, but for less time. Amazing truffle you know,
1: pigs. Everybody risks for less time than we do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, those are the
0: main places to find what's coming out of out of my mouth or hands. Oh, awesome. awesome. yeah. great. Cool. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, brother. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. Um, yeah. Uh, avoid, avoid the plague. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So that was wonderful as always thanks to Macon for taking the time uh around midnight over there in denmark to <laughs> join us and talk about his latest essay the entertainment um yes, yes. but you know what we got to do before we get out of here austin uh what do we got to do man we got to do the sticky leaves segment remember the sticky leaves is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe so austin what's doing it for you this week all right, I'm going to try
2: to avoid just falling into all of these, like, late neoliberal cliches that surround this topic. And I'm going to suggest something uh, for other people to engage in. But also, really, I'm just going to kind of give my personal experience about it because it's been fantastic. But so I really enjoy meditating, Right. And it's been something that I have done off and on for years in various ways. When I was in my more evangelical phase, I would do like Bible reads. Did you do your daily devotions, Troy? Was that a thing that you practiced
1: at some point? What do you think, Austin?
2: Yeah, I think you absolutely fucking did. <laughs> you meditated over the words of Karl Bart more than you did of the Bible, though, you fucking heretic. No, um, I didn't,
1: dude.
2: <laughs> did you never do any daily daily
1: devotions? Oh, of course, I did.
2: Oh, okay, yeah, a, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Of, of the actual scriptures, though, dude, that was a yeah, yeah, was a good boy. Exactly.
2: That was what we did, right? Like you would, man. I used to think it was like it's like a thing that I would do, like wake up early in the morning, read a read a passage from scripture, meditate on it, maybe write scribblings, you know, think about it, right? Because especially when you're studying at a university uh, and you're studying Bible, like one of the things they really try to encourage you is that you don't want to just academicize um, the the scriptures, right? You still want to maintain that personal spiritual connection. So, you know, so, so it was a practice. It's something that is instilled in every young Christian, I think, um, and definitely young male Christians who are thinking that they're going to be the next like spiritual leaders in the next generation, either as pastors or, missionaries or theologians or whatever. So I spent a lot of time kind of doing that sort of thing. And then when I got into like, uh, when I started to kind of like move out of my attachments to institutionalized religion or formal religion, we might say, um, then I started kind of like engaging and experimenting with different practices. I found some of like the Christian mystics and I started thinking about the ways that they would engage in their meditative practices and some of the work of like Henri uh, Henri nuan and Henri de Lubac who are like these French Catholic mystics and, and, you know, there was some interesting stuff that I was kind of exploring and trying to think about like a, maybe a more what we call it like a poetic relation to the divine, to God. Um, and then I didn't really do anything for years, right? Um, and, you know, I would engage in yoga and other kind of pseudo-spiritual activities, especially in L.A. just because it's kind of a thing to do and— um, and and yeah, like I, I would really enjoy those activities, but it was never like like I was practicing meditation. Like it was this intentional thing that I was trying to seek some sort of spiritual uh goal or whatever. Um and then I would say lately, uh especially over the last, you know, couple of years, I've kind of changed that. Actually, it was the past over a few years. It's been kind of off and on, but I had a friend introduce me to to tantra, tantra, however you want to say it, and um, and that's a very sort of meditative practice. We generally think of it as just being sex, but it's not just sex, right? Um, it's it's much more of a spiritual meditative practice than anything else. Um, but I've been kind of exploring that off and on for the last few years. Sometimes I'm more interested in engaging with it, and sometimes I'm more engaged, and other times I'm not. Um, but lately, especially over the last uh, over the last year, I've I've made it um, a part of my weekly definitely and almost daily daily uh, routine is to meditate or to do um, yoga or to engage in some sort of tantric practice or whatever right it's it's stuff that i've incorporated into my into my life and i just want to say that i really do love it and one of the things that i think is so interesting and this is this will be like the i guess a shitty portion of it is that like most people i think um, are fed that we need to like download you know headspace or the calm app or one of these apps because um, these will alleviate the anxieties that you are currently encountering right or are currently experiencing or the stresses of, of daily life and there's no sort of critique of why that anxiety emerges and why those stresses emerge and then there's not really much of an analysis of how these apps might only reinforce those power structures right um William Davies has written kind of a book on this called "The Happiness Industry" that is a really good sociological account of how happiness has become part of uh, the industry of capital, right? The regime of capital, which is very good. So a lot of times, you know that 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 does happen. But one of the things I've been thinking about, and then even when you talk with people, they're like, "Oh, do you meditate? Because it really helps. It really helps. Well, helps what?" Right. Yeah, helps that, that's with what <laughs> helps with what. Like, what is it helping? And then, why is there this instrumental view of these practices that aren't intended to be purely instrumentalized? Like, that doesn't mean that there is no instrumental value in them, but they're not intended to just simply be a thing that you do so that you can feel better, so that you can go to work, which is how the West kind of views all of its interventions, right? You take this pill to solve this problem. You do this meditation to solve this problem. There's no analysis of the problem, and then really it just purely instrumentalizes the thing in order to get you over the supposed hurdle, right? Um, And so that really does kind of I think, limit what what a meditative practice can be. And so I just wanted to recommend a couple of apps that I've really enjoyed that I think are a bit more grounded, we might say, and a bit more traditional. And when I say grounded, I, I mean that they're kind of rooted in um, a sort of like more robust conception of spirituality, of tradition, of history. Um, and so for people who are engaged in these kind of things, and this isn't to say that like, the freaking calm app isn't good i use it sometimes to sleep at night there's this really nice you know like uh stories that you can listen to or these kind of uh, guided meditations they they can be really nice right um and the the kind of like daily meditation in the calm app it's like 10 minutes and it's really nice and if you want to if you don't if you're not really comfortable with meditation, or if you're new to meditation, or um, if it's if it's something you just don't have a lot of time for, these can be great for like a commute where you're sitting on like a bus, or if you do have time at your at your house that you can do that, that's great. But the ones that I really have enjoyed are Satva, it's S A T T V A, and Plum Village. Now Plum Village, you might recognize that name because it's the community that Tichy Not Han, or however you say Tichy Not Han that he um, is a part of. And um, we've talked about him previously on the podcast with Tom Airy, which was like our fucking – one of our first 10 episodes yeah. that we ever did but he is a zen buddhist monk a peace activist you know he um he's from vietnam and he's like people have tried to assassinate him multiple times he tells this story where like you know bombs have gone off in various monasteries where he's lived or various houses where he's lived and that uh, someone tried to throw a bomb into his room but the curtain threw it back out onto the street saving his life so <laughs> Um, yeah, and I love the way he said it. He's like, they threw it into my room, but the curtain threw it back out on the street. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that, the Plum Village app is one that, um, that he's associated with. Uh, and so there are actual, like, um... Uh, seminars and dharma teachings and all kinds of things that actually that he teaches but then also just you know silent meditations or guided meditations or meditations with um, you know just bells or, or whatever so there's various options and then the sattva app is a little bit more like exploring kundalini and exploring chakras um, but they're both really I think really nice apps if you're interested in kind of really exploring a more robust I, I think a more robust practice of meditation and spirituality but it's something that i really enjoy and there's no right and wrong way to do it i don't think i think so many people are also stuck with when you think of it in terms of instrumental terms because it's meant to help with something then it means that there's like a right way and a wrong way to do it so that you can get to the other side right so that you can be happy so that you can reduce your anxiety so that you can deal your trauma so that you can find out who you really are or whatever these kind of cliche things are that like Uh, the kind of like pop culture industry feeds to us but I think that when you really kind of start to explore a meditative practice in these more robust ways those instrumental forms of rationality recede into the background a little bit more not that they disappear entirely but they can recede a little bit more and it can really just be about something else what can it be about well I think it really varies from person to person but for me it definitely is much more of um It's not really about trying to find an answer, but it's really about learning to be still, um, learning to kind of um, uh, not be afraid of the flows of my body. Like one of the things that I was, you know, you're, you're taught in a Christian world is oftentimes to like deny the body, right? Deny the fluctuations, deny the desires, deny the passions. And that can come a lot of times with shame, with guilt, with fear, with resistance, with hesitancy to kind of express yourself. I don't want to say to be who you really are because I think there is no uh, essential who we are. There's always like the process of who we're becoming. But it's really kind of entangling ourselves in that process that is oftentimes denigrated in Western culture and then definitely in Christian uh, Christian influenced, Uh, knowledge regimes. And so one of the things that meditation does is I think it really helps me to kind of navigate through those stormy seas and to kind of become more affirming. And I can take my Deleuzianism into my meditation practices as well. So, you know, like, uh, so whatever, whatever is your thing, I think you can, you can make it your own. It doesn't have to be that you're following a strict guideline. It doesn't have to be that you're doing something to achieve a certain set of results, but it can you can do it for the sake of doing it and you can actually find a joy in it and that's not just with meditation but also with yoga and then also i think with with like tantric practices which can inform sexuality and things like that in in various kind of lovely ways that kind of get rid of the shame and the guilt and the things like that that oftentimes come from um, some of the pressures that we get in our knowledge regimes in western society um, and in particular if you do have some sort of attachment to a christian past so yeah, uh, the Sattva app, the Plum Village app. I think they're fantastic. I would check them out, and um, yeah, that's that's kind of what's giving me life at the moment.
1: So yeah, no, that's a lot of good stuff, dude. I have so many things I want to talk about, but I know we have to limit this because the sticky leaves. Like at some point, maybe we should read something and talk more about, especially this idea about happiness, um, mm. which yeah, I mean, I think in addition to obviously the the relation of meditation being used as a tool for a more efficient capitalism. There is also, I think, even more, even bigger than that. Just the general idea that happiness is an end is That's wrong right. in general, um, and that precedes capitalism even as a as a conception of of sort of practical rationality. Um, so that I think is a, a thing to address. And everything else, I think, you said is right on is just right on the money uh, about meditation. I myself have meditated for years. Um, I find those apps to be more anxiety inducing um, well so because they tell you yeah like the calm app in particular
2: i I had to stop using it because and like there's another one called sync tuition that i really liked the introductory one but when they tell you to like be positive and to be gracious and to 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 have gratitude and to affirm these things like sometimes i'm kind of like it's a little bit too late neoliberal logic forcing me to feel a certain way you know
1: yeah this is it's defeating some of the purpose of meditation yeah. it's a tool in the first place which is what it is it's a tool it's a sort of non-moral or morally neutral tool by itself which can be used for um nefarious or you know positive ends depending upon the context and the use of it right yeah um And it can be great if you use it to help yourself become more mentally healthy, but it's not by itself going to make you a good person or even in any way on its own move you towards being a good person. Like, uh, you, you can make yourself a more effective Dick by meditating (laughs) a lot, right? The, 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 the the, like boss or manager who meditates so that he can make firing his employees easier on him mentally, Mm. that might work. That might be totally effective, right? Um, Mm. So, yeah, there's an interesting connection between how that's used, how it's cast as a sort of uh, inherently moral tool when it's definitely not. But that said, it's it's absolutely an effective and helpful tool used correctly, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm I'm right with you all the way on, on all that. I'm going to check those out. It was Plumville Village Plum, and then was Plum it? Village. Yeah, Plum Village, Plum Village and, Sa- and Sattva. Sattva.
2: Yeah, S-A-T-T-V-A.
1: But just the latter part?
2: Uh, I believe so. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you about the problem of happiness. There is a, this tremendous pressure to be happy, right? And that's partly what the Will Davies books talks about. Maybe we can like find a, a summation like a like a review of it, like a LA review of books or something like that. And maybe that's maybe we could use that because that would be um, something to engage in. But yeah, there's this pressure to be happy. But the problem is is that happiness itself is wielded as a sort of emotional resource. Uh, Or a sort of um, A bludgeon almost To punish and to discipline in society Mm -hmm. And if you're not happy Then you are somehow outside the bounds of what is right And therefore outside the bounds of what is normal Outside the bounds of what is good And you are somehow deficient And therefore you need to do everything in your power To correct your course and get back and be happy And And and, of course the secret
1: is there Is that you can't uh, You can't aim at happiness (laughs) As an end It's incoherent. So you're never going to achieve it. Exactly. It's loosely pulling the football away from Charlie Brown.
2: And it fits perfectly with the commodity logic, which is something that Todd McGowan talks about in his book, Capitalism and Desire, is that capitalism, it breeds dissatisfaction by kind of perpetually courting you towards these things that this is going to satisfy. The next thing is going to satisfy. The next thing is going to make you happy. This will make you happy. But it's this endlessly receding goalpost that you'll never be able to actually achieve. And, but what that does is that's very productive for um, the accumulation of capital resources, right? And so it's very productive um, and uh, very powerful tool that benefits the already empowered. And so that's, that's one of the fundamental problems, which is why I, I kind of go back to this a lot, man. I really love the notion of eudaimonia, not in terms of being translated as happiness, but flourishing. And I try to think about what this means to flourish. And actually just the last little anecdote I'll share is the other day I was meditating and, and in one of the, um, Plum Village practices, uh, it wasn't, uh, Tich Han, It was, uh, one of the other, uh, one of the other, uh, gurus or guides or coaches or whatever. And he was saying, you know, these various things like not speaking, throughout, but it was a 20 minute meditation. And he probably speaks for about like two minutes total or a minute total throughout the entire 20 minutes, just giving little prompts. And one of the prompts that he gave was like, um, you breathe in and you're a flower and you breathe out. And I can't remember what it was, but it was, uh, and then the next one was like, you breathe in and you're a mountain and you breathe out in this. And, and it was just very, it was these, these kind of natural scapes that he was, um, like offering up. And when he talk, talked about the flower, I oftentimes think about eudaimonia in terms of flourishing and I think I've said this before but it's sort of like bountiful and I I picture like a field of really colorful like like i don't know about daisies or poppies or something that are all just like sprouting up towards the sun right but that doesn't mean that there aren't fucking ants and worms and insects that are killing each <laughs> other and the roots that are strangling the soil like it isn't just this like oh it's peace and everything is in harmony no there's also tensions and violence and destruction that's taking place but it somehow comes together to create this like swirling field that works or that operates or that grows or that reproduces that that is potent right and that's what i like to think of when i think of flourishing and for me that's a much more vivid and and kind of maybe even um maybe just a better way of thinking about eudaimonia And that's one of the things that I think about a lot about. And that was kind of a really lovely like moment when he mentioned the flower, all of a sudden that field popped into my mind and I wasn't thinking about happiness, but then I kind of was thinking about, oh, what would it mean to flourish, you know? And like, what what does it mean to like be in that field, right? And are each of us a field or are we a flower in the field or are we both, you know? And and I I think those kinds of things are kind of interesting and productive um, thought processes to indulge in and to engage in. So yeah, that was kind of kind of a nice little thing
1: yeah that was beautiful dude um yeah i got some issues with eudaimonia, but i'm not going to talk about them right now
2: <laughs> yeah i mean in the aristotelian it's sense better, it's
1: certainly a much better account of uh of it's translated happiness in a lot of texts right in aristotle um but it's certainly a better account of something like human flourishing than our contemporary notion of happiness is that's for sure
2: Definitely, definitely. And of course, you know, there are all the problems with, you know, teleology and shit like that and who can flourish. Yeah, what, does it, what is, does
1: it mean for a race to flourish? <laughs> yeah, 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 Whoops. there are definitely, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There are some issues, um, which is why I just, I think maybe I'm abstracting it. It's just the notion of flourishing that I like, that I think is interesting. So maybe we can detach it from the Aristotelian baggage, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's what I got to say about my sticky leaves. The Plum Village app and the Sattva app. Those are the ones that I've enjoyed.
1: All right. Sweet. Should we let's cap it go ahead here, and. Dude?
2: Yeah, dude. Let's wrap shit up in this long episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to Macon for joining us and sharing all of the wonderful stuff about his essay and related issues that we delved into. Um, you can hit us up on twitter owls underscore at underscore dawn you can email us owls at podcast at gmail.com with questions suggestions etc etc things like that comments on the show or content or whatever um if you want to get access to our bonus election episode go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and you can check out the tiers there also the poll is live for the next patron sponsored uh, episode so again patreon.com slash owls at dawn and i think that's it unless there's anything else you have to say Troy.
1: just one single thing i can think of dude and what is that dust the dune american